Christ. Uh, we will begin looking at verse 18, and we'll run through, oh, verses 21, that little section there. I trust that you're there. Let's pray, and then we'll dive, dive right into our sermon. So uh, if you would pray with me one more time. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is for us to gather together, uh, to sit under uh, your word. And Father, I pray that we would come with hearts that are submissive to your word, that truly we would come to listen and to place ourselves under the authority of your scripture, not to place ourselves over it, but to be uh, placed under it, knowing that your word is truth, that it's life, that it's, uh, that it's real, that it's given from you, that it's uh, without error and it's completely trustworthy, and that you have revelation of who you are and who we are and what you want to do in our lives. Father, this uh, particular season uh, for uh, those of us who, who, who claim the name of Christ is particularly meaningful. Father, we contemplate and we pause uh, and we are astounded that you would become man and that we are humbled that your son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the eternal trinity would add flesh and blood and bones and hair and eyes to his deity and that Jesus, you being the very one who created everything that we see, the whole world, the whole universe, uh, this, uh, this, this whole planet that you've made, that you would become one of us, uh, that you would humble yourself to serve us in obedience to the Father, to be our Savior, to be our King, to be our Lord, to be truly Emmanuel, God with us, to reveal to us the Father in flesh and in, and in bones, uh, and we are so grateful that some 2,000 years ago you did that and you came uh, as, a, as a baby, that you were born humbly, not uh, to a, a royal family, but to a peasant family, and that you were born not in a, a spectacular palace, but in a, a stinky stable, and that the wood uh, and the stable that you laid on, Jesus, uh, you created that tree, and yet you humbly came and, and uh, uh, served us in this way. And so help us. Help us to grasp, in particular, over the next four weeks, who you are. We want to know you better. We want to follow you. We want our fellowship with you to be more rich, to be more deep. We want our understanding and our, and our obedience to be more radical because we understand who you are. And so as we, as we begin this journey to explore just some of your names, some of your titles, Jesus, help us open our eyes. We pray that we would be changed as we know you better. We ask it in your name, the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the, the name that at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. To that, it's in that great name that we as a church pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. You know, sometimes when a person's name is misunderstood, uh, when a person's name and identity is confused, it can lead to much trouble. It can lead to trouble for the person whose identity and whose name is being messed up or confused. And it can also lead to trouble for the people who are trying to uh, talk or communicate uh, with the person whose name is being confused. Um, many of you know my mom. She's been here several times uh, visiting us uh, over the years that we've been here. And uh, many of you know her, most of you know her as Darnell. Uh, Darnell Sheffer is what she goes by. Uh, however, uh, that's not her real name. Uh, it is her real name, but not really. Uh, see, my mom uh, goes by her middle name. Uh, her first name is actually Linda. So Linda is her, her technically, you know, right name, Linda Darnell Sheffer. And so I was asking her as I was preparing for these sermons to share 
a few stories of, of the trouble that she encountered uh, by having uh, her middle name as her first name and being misunderstood, having her identity uh, uh, mistaken. And she had several stories uh, to share with me. But I, I just want to share uh, one quick story with you that I think makes the point that uh, it's important that we get people's names right and, and that when we don't, when somebody's name and their identity is, is confused, it can lead to trouble. So my mom told me, and I had never heard this story before, so it was news to me, uh, that when she was 18 years old, uh, she got a letter in the mail. Now, uh, to give some context uh, to this story, when my mom was 18 years old, uh, the war in Vietnam was going on, and several of her peers and classmates had been drafted. And uh, apparently the way they did it was they sent you a letter saying, this is who you are, and we're drafting you for service to serve uh, in Vietnam. And uh, you may be... You may know where this story is going. And so uh, my mom tells a story when she uh, uh, walked in one day, and uh, her mother had an envelope waiting there for her, and it was opened. And uh, her mom had a, a bit of a terrified and confused and a bit of a shocked look on her face. And my mom said to her mother, what's, what's wrong? And she said, well, uh, you got this letter in the mail, and it's from the U.S. government. And she said, okay, that's odd. And her mother uh, went on to say, and it, it says that you're being drafted to serve in Vietnam. And, uh, of course, at that time, women were not drafted. And uh, my mom said, what? I-, I can't be drafted. And she looked at the letter, and the letter read something to the effect of, hello, uh, Mr. Darnell Sheffer, um, you are being drafted to serve in the U.S. military. Well, why did that happen? Well, as my mom explains uh, uh, numerous times, uh, Darnell is really more of a boy's name. Uh, and she uh, oftentimes... Uh, gives her mother a hard time for, for giving her a, a boy name. Uh, and then her mom says, well, why did you go with it? You should have gone with Linda. And they begin this roundabout argument of whose name is better. But my mom chose Darnell to go with. Uh, well, it created much confusion, as you can imagine, and much, uh, co- much conflict. And so to make a long story short, my mom called the office and, and uh, had to verify that she indeed was not a male, but that she was really a female, and that uh, in all of her forms she had accidentally written Darnell Sheffer. Um, you know, that's it's simply a story to make the point that when a person's name is misunderstood, it can often lead to trouble. It can lead to, to trouble for the person whose name it is and also for those of us who are trying to communicate with that person. I would say similarly this morning, when we misunderstand the name of Jesus, when we misappropriate and fail to comprehend his titles and his names, it can lead to trouble for us spiritually, that is, we fail to understand the depth of who he is, of what he has done, and what he's doing in our lives. And uh, this study that we're going to embark on won't cover all the names of Jesus, uh, because there are many. Uh, it's a really profitable study. You can, uh, you, can, you can embark on it on your own if you want. But what we're going to do uh, is, for the next four weeks in our series, Baby Names, explore several of the names and the titles given to Jesus in the New Testament. We're going to find out uh, what they mean, what they're about, and then what, what signif- significance they have for us today. And so we're going to begin with a name, and it's really a, uh, a, a, a name with some titles, but, it, but it's the name most oftentimes used of Jesus in the New Testament. Can you guess what it is? It's actually a group of names. Think about it for a second. It's a group of names. It's three to be exact, but this is, uh, so to speak, the most dominant designation for Jesus in the New Testament. Is it behind me? No, it's not. It's this. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the most dominant designation that as it's used uh, the most times in the New Testament to describe 
uh, our Savior. Uh, not only is it used the most, but it's used most widely across the New Testament. That is, uh, most of, if not all of the authors use this name. In fact, I did a little research. Um, out of the 27 books of the New Testament, only 10 of them don't use this proper uh, formal name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And really only two of them, two of them, only two of them, Luke and Third John, don't use any variation of this name. In other words, uh, it could be the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ. So all but two books in the New Testament have some sort of variation of this name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God chose to reveal his son to us in his names, this is the most dominant designation, the Lord Jesus Christ. I call, I call this, this name a Jesus sandwich. So why do I call it that? Why do I call this a Jesus sandwich? Well, what is a sandwich, right? We all know what a sandwich is. It's a piece of bread, and you stick something in between it, right? Meat, turkey. Many of us maybe had turkey, leftover turkey sandwiches, right? So you got bread, you got your meat, or whatever it is, and you got your bread, right? It's a sandwich. Well, this is a Jesus sandwich because what you have is the proper name of Jesus, right? His given birth name, Jesus, in the middle of two titles. Do you see that? In the middle of two designations, the Lord on the one hand, and then Christ on the other. So it's, it's functionally a Jesus sandwich. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take this slow. Uh, today, we're going to just look at the proper name Jesus. And then in uh, the weeks to come, in particular next week, we'll, get, we'll begin to look at some of the titles given to Jesus. That is, the Lord. What does that mean? Christ. What does that mean? There are many other titles and descriptions given to Jesus. So this morning, we're just going to focus our attention a little bit on the proper birth name given to our Lord, and that is the name of Jesus. So let's do that just for a second, and then we'll see three implications, or maybe three applications of the significance for you and I today of the name of Jesus. So I'm, I'm going to uh, not exactly sing, but, but kind of sing a little bit, uh, a, a bit of an old hymn. Many of you who maybe grew up with hymns, or maybe you didn't, this may be familiar uh, to you, but I want you to uh, kind of finish it for me, Okay. Uh, the, the chorus goes like this, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. How does it go? Fills my every what? Longing, keeps me singing as I go, right? That's, that's a, an old hymn, and I, and I grew up with a hymn like that. And as I think about, as I think about the name of Jesus, it is the sweetest name that I know. But, but why? I mean, why is it the sweetest name? name of all. Well, let me just give you some information about the name of Jesus to help us understand why truly it is the sweetest name around. So, starting with our English, right? We call him what? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. That's, that's what we call him. Uh, really, that is our English transliteration, which basically means a translation from another language from the Greek word, right? So our word Jesus comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word is Iesus. You don't have to remember that. There's no quiz or anything like that, right? But that's where it comes from, the Greek word Iesus, and that's found in your New Testament because the New Testament is written in Greek, but we know that the Old Testament at least the vast majority of it, was not written in Greek. It was written in what? It was written in Hebrew, right? And so I'm tracing the name here. Uh, Jesus in English, Iesus in Greek, and that is actually a transliteration. That is Iesus. is a transliteration from the Hebrew language. Now here's where we get to the significance of the name of Jesus. Because in Hebrew, it's translated Yeshua in short. There's a longer version, but that's good enough for us. Yeshua. 
which is uh, actually the word Joshua. So if you're reading in the Old Testament and you read about Joshua, that's Jesus in a sense. That's the same name. It's, it's the same name. It's Yeshua. So what does that mean? I think in our culture we have uh, lost the significance of names. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, oftentimes, in fact, I, I get asked this quite a bit um, from people who don't know me. I say, hi, my name's Trey. And they say, oh, is that a, is that a nickname? Or, you know, I say, no, that's actually my, my birth name. Uh, because oftentimes when people are called Trey, it's not their real name, but it's a, it's a nickname because they're the third, right? Well, I, in a sense, uh, am a third. And so I explain the significance of my name, right? And so for me, I think that's cool that I can say, you know what, I'm, I'm a third in a sense. My middle name is Merrill, and my grandfather's first name is Merrill, and his father's name is Merrill, and then my son's middle name is Merrill. So there's some significance to my name. It, it means something when you hear it, right? But for most of us, that's not the case, right? So when I say, uh, I'll use my wife for example, uh, hello, my name is Shelley, it doesn't convey any meaning. Or hello, my name is Bob. You don't know anything about the person or about the name from that. But in biblical times and in Old Testament in particular, names, they mattered. When parents would give their children a name, it it was significant. It was what they intended or hoped that child would be or maybe something about the circumstance under which that child was born. And And so when they heard the name Yeshua, it wasn't just a name. It wasn't just like Bob or Sally, or Joe, right? It conveyed something. So what did it convey? The term Yeshua means uh, uh, possibly a couple things. It means the Lord is salvation. It means the Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord is salvation. Or it could be translated the Lord's salvation or God's salvation. That's what Yeshua means. So what am I getting at? When we hear the name Jesus, it should mean something because it's intended to show us and tell us about something for who he is and what he has done and what he wants to do in our lives. So when we think, so when you're reading, when you're reading your New Testament, when you're reading the Gospels and you see the name Jesus, don't just skim over it. Think, God saves. That's what his name means. It means God saves. He is salvation. This is God's salvation to humanity. So this connection between Jesus and salvation, God's delivering us from something, is very explicit in Matthew 1. So I hope you're there, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, We'll start reading in verse 18, just to give a little context, and then we'll read through verse 21. But what I want you to see is the explicit connection, the reason why God wanted his son to be named Jesus is because it was a foreshadowing of what he was going to do. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, familiar passage probably for most, uh, especially during this Christmas time. Uh, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, And yet, did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here we get to the the meat of our text. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because uh, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name what? Jesus. Okay, so here we have an angelic declaration. God the Father says, this is what I want my son to be named, right? So for us, that's the, the, the prerogative of the parents, right? And so when I had my firstborn, I said, I wanted him to be called Asher. And when my second was born, I said, we, we, we said, right? We, <laughs> not just me, we want her to be named Piper. And the third, we want her to be named Sawyer. That's a parent's prerogative. But, but Mary and Joseph, they didn't have that prerogative because God himself said, when this child comes, this is the name that you're going to name him. So that should clue us in. This is significant. I'm going to name this child. So, she will give birth to a son, and you were to give him the name Jesus. That is, you were to give him the name Yeshua. You were to give him the name that God is salvation. You were to give him the name that God saves. Why? Very clearly, it says, because. Here's the reason. Because, what will he do? He will save his people from their what, church? From their sins, right? So very clearly there is this connection. The name of Jesus is significant because it indicates to us what his purpose in life, in death, in resurrection was. What was he going to do? What was the primary reason that Jesus came to the earth? It tells us his name is Yahweh saves because he's going to save. His name is God is salvation because he's going to be God's salvation for his people who have placed their faith in what he's done. And notice the object. What is the object from which we are going to be saved? Is it poverty? Is it uh, a lack of good education? Is it comfort? What are we going to be saved from? Because this is significant. What we're going to be saved from, what Jesus came to save us from, is indicative of our problem, right? Because if our biggest problem was we needed an educator, then that's what he would do. He would be a, an educator. But what, was, what is mankind's chief problem? Very clearly here, the text says that it's something called sin. So it's no surprise then, as you read through the rest of the New Testament, that the name of Jesus is often used with other words and other titles. So for instance, some 16 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Savior. Now that makes sense, right? Because what does his name mean? God saves. So he is the Savior. Words like save and salvation are often associated with the person and the work of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is all about salvation. He's all about bringing salvation from sin, according to this text. And then we're going to see in a little bit, he's all about bringing salvation from sin and its consequences in our life. So, is the hymn true? Is Jesus the sweetest name that we know? Does it fill our every, lo- every longing? Does it keep us singing as we go? Why? Why is Jesus the sweetest name that we know? It's simply this, because it's God's salvation, because he is God's salvation. It reminds us of what God has done and wants to do in our life, which is save us from the plight and the misery of sin holistically. And we'll talk about that in a second. So let's now transition. Uh, If you're taking notes, jot down one, two, three, or ABC, however you want to do it. Every good sermon has a three, so here's mine, right? The first one, what's the first implication or application? In other words, what does it matter that this baby that was born some 2,000 plus years ago, what does it matter that his name 
was Jesus. What does it matter that he is the Lord's salvation? Well, uh, three things. Number one, the first implication is that it implies that we need saving, right? It implies that we need saving. So notice, his name is to be called Jesus, God's salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. And so it implies, right, if he's the Savior, then what does it imply? That there's a need, right? That there's a need for salvation. Uh, A Savior comes implies that there is a need for him to save us from something. Salvation in the Old Testament, it's, it's a big term. It simply means deliverance. It simply means deliverance from something. And it can be different things, but the Bible wholeheartedly affirms that our, the main thing we need delivered from is sin. Is sin. So what is sin? This is kind of Bible 101, but that's okay. It's really important as we think about what Jesus has done. And we rejoice in what he's done. What is sin? We need saving from sin. It simply, uh, simply means in the New Testament, missing the mark. That's the best, I think, way that we can describe it. It's aiming for a mark or a goal and falling short of that mark, falling short of that goal. It's missing the mark of perfect obedience to God. So just think about that. If that's the standard for God in a relationship with him and heaven, is perfect obedience to him out of motive to love him and to glorify his name, uh, if that's the mark, then to sin is to fall short of that. Just once is to fall short of that. Romans 3.23, it's on the screen, uh, I think, says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think many of us have this memorized, but, but what does this truly mean? Notice some of the, the, some of the significant words here. For some have sinned. Is that what it says? Church, shake your head at me. No. Okay, thank you. Okay, don't fall asleep here. No, all have sinned, right? And all, in the Greek, you know what it means? It means all. It means everyone, right? It means everyone has sinned. Me, you, everyone that's ever born has fallen short of this mark of perfect obedience, of living our lives uh, and gl- to glorify God. Uh, out of love for him, we've fallen short of that. All of us, we fall short of that mark. We have fallen short of it. It's a, it's a high standard. You know, I uh, went searching for a, a, an appropriate illustration here, and uh, I came up with a, a Guinness Book of World Records. I think, it's, I think it's current, as far as I can tell. And I wanted to know, what was the record for consecutive free throws made? What was the record for consecutive free throws made? We're getting right into the midst of basketball season, and uh, football season is on its way out. You can cry now. Um, and if, for those of you who love basketball, it's, it's that time of season. So I, wa- I wanted to know, how many, how many free throws has one person made in one setting in a row? And I was astounded by the answer. Uh, as far as I know, in 1996, there was a man named Ted St. Martin. And he, are you ready for this? He made consecutively in a row 5,221 free throws in a row consecutively. And it took him some seven hours and 20 minutes to do it. So just think about going to work tomorrow and saying, instead of working, I'm going to shoot free throws all day long, right? And, and here's the catch. Not only am I going to shoot free throws all day long, you won't miss one. You won't miss it until seven hours and 21 minutes, right? Because eventually, 
uh, the streak ended. As amazing as that is, he made 5,221 in a row. But what happened when 5,222 came around? What happened? He missed. He missed. I mean, who can blame the guy, okay? Right? We'll give him a pass on that. But that's not how it works with God. Even if we make 5,221 obediences in a row, when we fall short, we fall short. And we miss the standard. And because of that, we all have sinned. And as a result, what's, what's the result? What's the consequence of all of our sin, of, of falling short of this mark? Well, Romans 6.23 tells us in the very first half of the verse. It says this, For the wages of sin is death. So we're all, I think, familiar with this concept. It's not hard. What is a wage? You do something, you do a work, and then what? You get paid, right? That's what a wage is. In other words, a wage is something earned, right? So this verse says, the wages, what we earn from our sin is what? Did you catch it? Death. So what we earn from our sin is death. So what does the Bible mean by death? The concept of death in the Bible is that of separation. It means to separate. And so when you die physically, what happens? Your spirit or your immaterial part is separated from your body. And in a spiritual sense, death is like that. It is a separation of us from God's presence. It's a separation from God's glory. It's a separation from right relationship with God. It's a separation from what God intended us to be all along, which was to live in his presence, in his fellowship, in a sweet friendship, uh, loving him with all that we are, obeying him with all that we are. And it's not drudgery, but it's, it's the joy of our life. That's what God has made us to be. But death is being separate or separated from that. So the wages of sin is physical death, first of all, which we all experience. And the wages of sin is, is spiritual death. It's, in, in, in a word, it's hell. It's conscious torment, judgment, away from the presence of God. That's what we earn. Now, remember, who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Some people? No, everyone. So then what does that mean about the wages of sin? Who experiences death? Everyone. Everyone experiences death in this way if, if God chooses to do nothing about it. And thank God that he didn't. So what's the first implication? We, we need saving. But notice the second part of this little verse. It segues us to the second implication, which is we cannot save ourselves. For the wages of sin of, uh, is death, but... So what we earn is death, but instead there's a gift out there. And what's the gift? But the gift of God is what? Eternal life, and it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice the contrast. What we earn from our sin is death, but we can actually have eternal life, which is not just living forever. It's living forever in a right relationship with God. We can have that. How? Can we earn it? What does it say? It's a gift, right? We don't earn gifts. We're about to give gifts at Christmas time, right? We're, supposed to, we're about to receive gifts. And when I get a gift, I don't say, oh, thanks for the gift. Now, here's 10 bucks. Not how it works. When you give a present to your kid, they don't say, mom and dad, thank you so much for this, whatever it is. And, and here's, you know, the $25 that it took to, to pay for it. It's a gift. You don't earn it, right? You can't earn it. In contrast to the, the wages of our sin, which we earn is death. God says, there's a gift out there for you. 
you need saving, there's a gift out there, and you can't earn it. Number two, we can't save ourselves. If Jesus is God's salvation, and if we can't, if he's the Savior, then we can't be the Savior. Does that make sense? If he's the Savior, we can't do it. If he provides the salvation, we, by default, cannot provide the salvation for ourselves. We can't save ourselves, right? It means that we realize that we are in a place that we cannot escape from the wrath and the judgment and the death that we deserve without help. We, need, we, we have to recognize that we need God to do something about it. We're, we're in, a, in a bad state, and we need for him to do something about it. A few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, uh, I was uh, about to go play outside with my kids, Asher and Piper to be specific, and uh, they said, let's go play outside. I said, okay. So we, I got all their jackets on and got them ready to go, right? And I had both. We have a two-car garage, and, and both of the garage doors were down. And on the one side, it's an automatic garage door. The other is not. And so um, I got them all dressed, and I said, hey, I have to go do something. So I went to get my jacket on or whatever, right? So I, I sent them out the door through the garage, and they're in our garage, and the garage doors are shut. So imagine this. And uh, I hear the garage door opening up as I'm uh, putting my jacket on or whatever. I'm like, okay, they're going outside. I mean, literally, like, I'm 30 seconds behind them. You know, I'm, I'm about to follow them out the door. Garage door is going up, automatic garage door. No big deal. Asher knows how to hit it. He hits it all the time, and he, and he leaves. You know, he, he goes out the, the door. No problem. So I don't think anything of it. And about, uh, about 10, 15 seconds later, I hear a scream. I hear screaming. Uh, and it sounds like Asher. And I'm like, Okay, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And then Piper comes, and, and she tries to convey to me that Bubba needs help, okay? You know, she's two almost, and she's, uh, you know, Bubba needs help. And I'm like, okay. So I walk out the door, and I find Asher um, on the ground right below uh, where the garage door has opened, uh, crying on the ground there. And I said, Asher, what happened? What happened? And about that moment, I look up, and our neighbor from across the street is kind of, kind of huffing it, you know, running quickly, uh, to our house. I'm like, ah, you know, what do you, her name's Abby. Abby, what are you doing? You know, I'm very confused here. Asher, why are you crying? Abby, why are you running to my house? You know, and the, the, long, the long and short of it is that what my brilliant son had done, very smart, is he wanted to get, I think, maybe a, what was that, maybe a rocket ship ride or something. So uh, he hit the, the door. I mean, he hit the, the garage door opener, and we have, you know, like a handle that you could lift it, and guess what he did? He grabbed onto the handle, and he got a ride. Up, 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 right? And uh, Abby said, your son was hanging from your garage door. (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) I I couldn't comprehend that. What do you mean he's hanging from my garage? He was hanging from your garage door. And I said, what? I said, Asher, what happened? And he said, I fell. I'm like, what happened? You know, and he went on to explain how he wanted to get a ride. So, very smart. He hit the button and went up, 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 up. But what happened? He found himself at a point where he recognized that he was in trouble, <laughs> you know? He couldn't save himself. He was, I don't know, five feet off the ground maybe, ten feet, I'm not sure. He recognized that he needed help. And so what did he do? He said, help, <laughs> dad, come get me, right? He recognized that he was in a spot that he couldn't save himself, And church, that's where we have to be before we recognize that we need a Savior. We have to recognize that because all have sinned and because the wages of sin is death, we're all in that spot, spiritually, so to speak. We're all hanging out to dry, awaiting the wrath of God. That's where we are, spiritually, without Christ in our life. 
And the Bible says over and over again that we can't fix it by our own effort, by our own internal goodness, by our own good deeds, by our religious actions, by our relative morality, that we can't fix it. One of our favorite verses here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, says this, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. Notice that, not from yourself. So this salvation that Christ offers is not from us. It is a gift of God, the repetition of Romans 6.23. It's a gift. It's not from us. It's a gift God offers, not by works. We can't do anything to earn it. Why? So that no one can boast. So that no one can enter the pearly gates, so to speak, and say, God, I'm here because of what I've done. No, no, no. (laughs) We are here because of what Christ has done. And so we can't save ourselves. Pastor Mark Driscoll rightly says this. He says, the hard truth is that we are all sinners. And as a result, we can't save ourselves, but need a sinless Savior to do our saving. Which leads us to the third and final application implication. We need saving. We can't save ourselves. And Jesus, number three, is the only Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. It's in his name. It, mean, it means God's, God saves. It means this is Yahweh's salvation in him and him alone. We need, so what's our problem? Remember what the problem of sin is? That we don't obey perfectly and that we have sinned, right? We need someone to pay the debt. We need someone to pay the penalty, both of physical death and spiritual death that we deserve. We need that. But not only that, we need someone to live in our place perfectly. We need someone to shoot free throws all of their life and never miss. Does that make sense? We need someone who would live a life and never miss, never miss the mark, never sin in motive or thought or word or deed. That's what we need. And Jesus is the only person who could do that. Jesus is the only Savior because he did both of those, because he lived perfectly and he died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 should be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, speaking of Jesus, God made him who had no sin. So there's the sinless Savior. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that, here's the result, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. Why? Because there's a great exchange that happens. God gives Jesus our sin on the cross, right? So God gives Jesus our sin, and God, by, by our faith in Jesus, gives us his righteousness. You see the exchange? It's the greatest deal on earth. You're not going to get any better deal than that. God takes our sins and puts it on Jesus, and he takes his righteousness and gives it to us. That is a wonderful offer. I don't know if you went shopping. What was it, yesterday? Uh, Friday, right? Black Friday. I don't know if you went shopping. Uh, You probably found some great deals if you did. Hopefully you didn't get mauled or beat up or anything like that, right? Um, But if you went shopping, you might have found some great deals. You know what? This is the best deal ever. You can't top this deal, right? Jesus is the only person qualified to be our Savior. Peter says so in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter, as he's preaching about the resurrected Jesus, makes it clear, listen, we all need saving. We're all in the same boat. We can't save ourselves. Jesus is the only Savior made available. Now, let me, let me just burst a bubble here. If you say that in our culture today, um, people won't like you. They just won't. 
I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. They just won't like you. That's part of being a Christian is we say things that the culture rejects. They will say you're intolerant. They will say that's, that's not PC. It's not politically correct. They'll even call you a bigot for claiming that there is really only one way to be made right with God if there's a God at all. Popular culture is full of this. John Lennon great theologian, said this. He said, I believe what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. So they all said the right thing. It's just when what they said was translated, it just kind of got garbled. But it's really all the same. That's what John Lennon said. What about uh, another wonderful uh, a popular uh, culture theologian, Homer Simpson? You guys know Homer Simpson, right? This is what he says. <laughs> In one of the episodes, he says, I'm going to die. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, I love you all. Right? So just kind of cover the bases here, right? What about Gandhi? We all respect Gandhi for what he did. However, uh, he got it wrong here. He said this, all paths, all paths lead to God are equally, leading to God are equally good. Right? So every, it's, all, it's all good. And then, of course, the, the modern uh, pop culture uh, theologian of our day, Oprah, where we get all of our theology from in America, hopefully not, uh, but sadly, true. Oprah says this, one of the biggest mistakes human make, humans make is to believe that there is only one way. So if you were to believe Oprah, then you, you're not going to believe what Peter said, right? If you're going to believe Oprah, you're not going to believe what the Bible says. And if you're going to believe Oprah, you're not going to believe what I'm saying. Because what I'm saying and what Jesus himself said is what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, right? And no man comes to the Father except by whom? Gandhi? No. By Allah? Buddha? No. By, by me, right? No man comes to the Father but by me. So that's what, uh, that's what Lenin says. That's what Homer Simpson says. It's what uh, Gandhi and Oprah say. The real question is, what do you say? The real question is, what do you believe? The real question is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to put your trust and your personal faith in the Jesus of the Bible who alone can save you from your sin and its consequences? I want to ask you a pointed question this morning. This Christmas season, are you a Christian? Have you come to place your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to recognize these three implications that we, you, that I, I need saving from my sin, that, that I can't save myself, and that Jesus and what he's done on the cross is the only way that I can be right with God. Is, is that true of you this morning? If you're not sure, we're going to pray, and then we're going to be done. Uh, but if you're not sure of the person and the work of Jesus and where you stand with him, then you can pray with me in your heart right now. We're going to pray, and then we're going to be done with our service as we have learned about the name of Jesus. Pray with me. If you're here today and you say, I don't know if that's true of me, then let's pray and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you for the morning. We thank you that your word exclaims to us that your child that you caused to be conceived in the virgin womb of Mary is, uh, by the power of the Spirit, is indeed your, your son and is fully God and fully human, sinless and perfect, uh, and our Savior. He is your salvation to us. Father, I pray that these truths would not just kind of fade away in our hearts and minds as we anticipate football games or food or rest or whatever it is we're doing in the moments to come, but that your spirit would come even now and convict us if we are in the place where we have not accepted that we are 
uh, in a place of needing saving. Father, if there's a man or a woman here, a young boy or a young girl, and they, they haven't recognized, they're just now coming to realize, I've sinned, I've fallen short of the standard. I, I have earned death spiritually and physically, and I can't do anything about it. I need a gift. I need someone to do this for me, and Jesus is that gift. And would you pray in your heart with me uh, this prayer? It's not a magic prayer. It's a prayer of faith. The Bible says that we were saved and made right with God through our faith, our trust, our confidence in what Jesus has done. So would you pray this now if you're in that place? God, I recognize now that I, like everyone else, have sinned, that I have fallen short of your glory, and that I deserve and that I've earned wrath and judgment and separation from you forever, and that I am helpless to fix myself, that I cannot be good enough for you, that I can't do enough, I can't give enough, I can't serve enough. And yet you have sent your son, Jesus, to pay for what we deserve and to give us the perfect obedience that we need. And I trust in him. My confidence is in his name alone and in what he has done on the cross and being resurrected from the dead. So, God, I trust in your son. Would you give me eternal life now in Jesus' name? Father, if there's a a person who's just prayed that, that they would contact a friend or a pastor or a deacon or uh, whomever, and that they would, that they would come to, to make that known, that they have put their faith for the first time in the name of Jesus. Father, for the rest of us who have uh, been born again and we've placed our faith in Jesus and we know him, may this morning be a reminder, may it be a simple reminder of where we have been, of the place that we were in, the deep and dark and miry pit, and you have brought us out of that. You have paid the penalty for our sins. You have given us eternal life and you have saved us not just from the penalty of sin, but even from sin's power now as we struggle with lust and greed and, and, uh, and, and anger and frustration and selfishness and all of the sin that we even struggle with now as Christians, that you, Jesus, are saving us from that as you manifest your life in us and through us as we cooperate with you. And one day you've promised that you will come back and you will save us for good, that you will finish the job Jesus, and you will resurrect our bodies afresh and anew, and we will live with you eternally, without death and without sin, without inclination to temptation. We will enjoy you like we've never enjoyed you. We will serve you like we've never served you. We will uh, be in your presence like we've never been in your presence before, and we will live in eternal bliss and joy and goodness and obedience and worship to your glory forever. That is the salvation that is yet to come. And so, Jesus, we rejoice in it, and we ask that it would come quickly. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Guys, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week as we continue to explore the names of Jesus.